Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We're here at the Cisco headquarters. We're with Roland Akra. He's a senior VP and general manager of the Data Center Business Group here at Cisco. Roland, thank you so much for having me over here. Thank you, Yevgeny. Glad to be with you. You've left Cisco and come back twice. So this is your third time around yes. here. Um, tell us how you got here. Yeah, so uh, the first time around, uh, Cisco was a still pretty small company, a few hundred people. I started off at Cisco in Europe. I was based in France, and I helped build out the technical operations of Cisco in a, in a sales environment. And uh, that was from uh, 1991 until uh, 97, beginning of 97. And then I spent another seven years with Cisco here in the US in general management uh, capabilities on product uh, business units in the service provider space, routers and, and back products and access products. And then I went off and did uh, startups, of which one was acquired by Cisco. It was a company called Archrock in the sensor networking and energy analytics space. Today, you would call it IoT for sure. And that became the basis for Cisco's uh, current IoT business. Uh, it's one of the businesses in there and focused on the utility grids uh, like smart metering and uh, grid automation and uh, energy uh, spaces. Um, then I went back out and did more startups. And two years ago, um, which is now my third uh, landing at Cisco, I, I got excited by Cisco's plans and ambitions in the data center space, which was somewhat newer to me. I had done a lot of networking already, obviously, but more in, in uh, either service provider context or other uh, uh, industrial context. And doing the data center at a time of, that's so interesting and challenging like now was a big attraction to me. So I've been here now just a month over two years. Mm -hmm. And the, the IoT startup did that, and you mentioned utilities and stuff like that. Did you, did you guys get into the data center market at all? Because there's you know big application for energy management. Yes, yes. So, so the 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 products were there to be mostly connecting devices that were stranded and not connected until then. So the, what we focused on was on the one hand sensors and and radio systems and mesh networking systems to bring the data from uh, either the meters or the utility uh, devices, and then build backend software to gather the data and present it. So it was, you can think of it as the endpoint where either the actuation or the sensing is happening, and then the acting on the data in the backend. We were not doing data center infrastructure products in the sense of switches or servers or storage or mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But then, did, did you have any, any, any data center customers for the for the sensors. Oh yeah, we had many. Power. Yeah, because the the, the uh, data centers are a notorious, you know, uh, dense energy environment, and so we did a lot of work in both the um, heat and and energy in the form of uh, you know, the cooling and the humidification and so forth, because that takes a lot of uh, the power, as well as in the electrical uh, piece as well. Mm -hmm. And so we would build a complete 3D environment of, you know, where is the heat getting uh, uh, created in the data center? Is there any inefficiency in how you're cooling the air? Is hot air mixing with cool air? Is the voltage transformation from high voltage to medium to from AC to DC and things like that, places mm -hmm. where you could optimize the energy? So it, it was a, it was a uh, very nice, uh, quick impacting uh, kind of value proposition in the data center as the target, which, which is very different from the utility, obviously, yeah. which is a much larger scale but different problem. Is Cisco still doing that? Cisco is doing uh, much more of the grid uh, environment for as far as using those technologies. Um, we've done a lot of things uh, over the years in terms of energy efficiency in, in switches, also particularly in the campus, because that's where 
the switches are um, the source of power for things like IP phones and Wi-Fi access points. And to the extent that we do power over Ethernet and we deliver the power to these things, over the years we've built clever schemes of, for example, you know, shutting down some of the power modules in the switch, say, uh, on a policy that says after 7 p.m. most employees are gone, no need to power the IP phones, no need to power, uh, right. et cetera. And so, or to auto-detect that there's been no activity on a particular port, you could you could put the power brick in low power mode and uh -huh. save quite a bit of energy that way. Uh -huh. um, so uh, let's zoom in on the last time you returned to Cisco. You said you were uh, excited about things Cisco was doing in the data center space. Um, so did they actively recruit you? Um, did you actively pursue? Um, well, it was actually a, a happy marriage in the sense that I was actually busy uh, refining an idea for a startup that I was uh, going to go do focused on um, analytics and, and uh, leveraging the data that comes out of the systems in a, in a data center or in a network in general in order to you know, perform better, to deliver better outcomes like uh, preventing outages and improving availability or better mm. optimization of the performance. And when when Cisco reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we think there's a role that we'd be very excited to have you back and look at, when I found how much commonality of thinking there was between where Cisco wanted to go, and these were some, you know, softer products, of course, uh, and what, where my ideas were, I said, okay, well, I would have a bigger platform and a lot more... Uh, uh, muscle and, and speed to, to realize the ideas that I was very excited about. That was really mm -hmm. the, the, the spark that, that uh, got the matchmaking uh, going. So, okay, so, so you thought, I get to do this thing that I've been wanting to do, except I'm not going to have to... Um, go raise fund, money. And go raise money, fund, <laughs> yeah, yeah. build a company from scratch. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, fast forward to now... Um, has that did that play out the way you expected it to play out? Yeah, we're we're very excited that you know to to, to specifically to that theme of of leveraging data and performing analytics on it for for uh, specific outcomes. We we're in a great place on more than one count. You know, to to give, give a few examples, uh, one platform we have that's now been in the market and in you know several hundred customers is called Tetration. Uh, it is a platform that feeds itself from. Uh, data coming out of the, either the switches from the hardware, the ASICs that we have in our switches are capable of producing very uh, high resolution and, and rich telemetry, or from software agents that go into the workloads themselves where you know, a VM uh, is, is deployed or a container and then feeds data. And from that data, what Tetration does, it constructs a mapping of all the applications because most applications, as you know, today are distributed. They're sort of multi-headed things. Mm -hmm. And they evolve over time, right? When there's a, a burst of load, then they can spin up more VMs. Then they'll shrink when it becomes quiet. Or they move around for uh, optimization of uh, using the resources. And so all of that gets tracked and built. And profiles of all these applications get learned from data using machine learning approaches. And that then serves people to uh, construct the policies that they would like either the network or overlay software technology to perform whitelisted, as we call it, whitelisting policy, which mm -hmm. is, um, we used to be building mostly IP networks in a way where everyone can talk to everyone except the exceptions, quote unquote, right? That's the blacklisting approach. And for many sensitive workloads, particularly when they go to the cloud, uh, you want it an opposite paradigm. If you're holding consumer data, which has regulatory and, and you know, you have to be a very responsible steward of that data, you want to do the opposite. You want to say, given what's in that database, I'm going to explicitly allow only the things which should have any business contacting that database and only on the SQL port, not on anything else and so forth, and deny everything else. 
-hmm. So in any decent sized data center, even medium size, when you think about that graph of rules of who's allowed to do what with whom, even within an application, because the application is multi-headed, or between applications, it immediately becomes very, very difficult to do. And that's where the power of statistical learning and, and from the data inferring what those graphs should be and then presenting to the user. So titration is one such example of that, mm -hmm. which can do both the inference and the generation of the policy as well as the enforcement of the policy. Another example is what we're doing in telemetry for different outcomes. So this is a, the first one is more of a application mapping, discovery, and protection. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a security uh, outcome. Other outcomes that we focus on today with telemetry uh, are things like um, um, failure avoidance and, and uh, quick diagnostics and restoration uh, if there is a failure. So for example, we've built um, over the last few years um, a knowledge base, a, a, you can think of it as a database, of a digital signature of all the bugs. And what I mean by that is how do you recognize that it's bug A versus bug B, right? What are the symptoms of, of, of that um, mm -hmm. defect? And then in the background, when, when customers you know, sign bugs, up... Bugs, you mean all the, all the potential bugs uh, that customer applications can have? And That's right. No, or, or our bugs as well. So okay. it, 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 often it's our bugs, and we want uh -huh. to you know, quickly diagnose if, if there's an issue or a defect uh, that is known in a release of software. You know, the traditional method is a release of software gets put out. You hope you've caught all your bugs in, in your own you know, QA and testing, but often things right. leak out. Uh -huh. And then what you do is you start building you know, release notes, and, and you call the support people, and you say, I'm running into the symptom. They say, oh, well, let me see. Send me these logs. Send me more configuration files. And you're hours later still only beginning the process of root causing and figuring out what's going on. <clears throat> Instead, what we would like is by prefetching telemetry from the systems that we deploy so that the context is already being uh, built even before there is a problem. And in the background, we're comparing the fingerprints of what's coming in the telemetry with the known fingerprints of bugs. And then we can now proactively even tell a customer, look, we are seeing from that symptom that your switch or your server is exhibiting that, and we know you're running release you know, X dot Y, and we know you're turning on feature Z. That combination means you know, we know that you're, you're about to hit or you are actually experiencing mm -hmm. this bug. We're going to get you out of trouble before you actually uh -huh. you know, have the outage. And that's a, that's a product that's separate from titration? Yeah, that's a capability that we call Network Insights and that uh, in the uh, broader data center space we call Intersight. So we have a cloud-delivered capabilities. For example, uh -huh. our servers uh, will, quote-unquote, phone home and, and uh, uh, roll up that metadata, which allows you to do the ongoing diagnostics and, and preventive, uh, preventive maintenance, if mm -hmm. you will. It also is a great place or a great mechanism to... Um, to deliver proactive notifications for things like uh, security vulnerabilities, right? We mm -hmm. all know that every few months the industry goes up and says, oh, right. Spectre or Meltdown or some yeah. other P-cert. And um, we, once you have these, again, you can tell people the version you're running is, is you have not patched yourself. You are still vulnerable to that uh, potential issue. And positively nag people to tell them you're, you're, you're sitting right. in a dangerous place, you don't want to be there, let's uh -huh. just you know, schedule something before, uh, before you react to it uh, in, a, in, a, in a place of, of stress and, and outage. So, so that <coughs> and the titration, um, are, is that, are those kind of the things that you imagined uh, before, uh, before you joined Cisco this third time around? Yeah, I don't so know that I'm, I Probably you didn't have, obviously, the whole thing fleshed out. Yes. But, um, is that kind of 
are those the capabilities that you were thinking about? Yeah, I was thinking. I mean, I was. I my I, I, my ideas were not nearly as clear or well defined as they are today, where we have products in the markets and and uh, a lot of customers. But uh, I came at it from an approach which said, look, you know, in general, I had observed that other parts of the IT infrastructure space had been well ahead of the networking industry in terms of rolling up data in order to give customers outcomes. And you know, the one I, I had vividly in mind as I was researching my ideas was the storage industry. Like for the last 30 years before we had cloud, before you, we, we almost had no internet, people were still putting modem with phone lines. Because storage systems are, at the time, were all mechanical, there was no flash, therefore highly prone to failures. Uh, it was a default uh, acceptance, typically by customers, whether they were using NetApp or EMC or IBM or Hitachi, to when they put a storage system in place, to put a phone line or any kind of a connection mm -hmm. uh, to roll up some telemetry. And the quid pro quo between vendor and customer was, if you let me have that data, and of course it's not the data that's on the disk, obviously, right? Because that, that's too uh, uh, private. Uh, but the metadata that, that describes the behavior of, of a storage system, we're going to be looking for what we know are patterns that predict failures of a mechanical system, right? The spindle might not be acting uh, well, or the motor that's rotating the disk is, is showing you know, signatures of, of uh, potential data loss or, or going bad. And data loss being such a crippling thing, the stakes were high and the value proposition was great. And so it struck me that in networking, while we don't have mechanical, you know, well, I mean, we have power supplies and fans and things like that. Those also lend themselves. But not in general, quite as many moving parts. Yeah. Not as many moving parts, but still, you know, in general, uh, I had kind of realized that systems produce a lot of data. It's a matter of actually scooping it up and looking at it the right way, because otherwise, you know, these things get put in memory, and when the memory, you know, uh, gets full, then you you throw them away, and and the first signs of, of something about to happen or the first symptoms uh, you'll miss, and then you end up reacting when time is of the essence and things are down and everybody's stressed and so forth. So that I had that very clear idea that, and having done IoT, I'll, I'll say something perhaps a little bit cute, which is that it struck me that everybody is looking for use cases in IoT in you know far-fetched and, and new environments, right? You know connected zebras in the savannah mm -hmm. and connected right. uh, everything uh, everywhere. And it struck me that the biggest T in IoT is actually the IT devices. If you think yeah. about them as mm -hmm. sources of data for their own good in order to give better health, better availability, better performance, better uh, prediction of where the load is going to be in six months and so forth. And um, so I got, I got you know, excited by that. And you know, I'm, I'm a statistician by training, so I had been tracking all of the data science and machine learning and what was going on in that space. So I, uh, I was itching to, uh, to try those ideas on, on uh, networking equipment, mm -hmm. on server equipment, and mm -hmm. so forth. You've seen Cisco over a long period of time. You've seen it gone through its iterations um, or evolution, I guess. Um, what's the most frequently misunderstood thing about Cisco? <laughs> um, that Cisco is a perhaps uh, long-lived young company. It, we have that paradox at Cisco. And, and the reason I say that is because we have... Um, from, from, I would say, you know, after the first, uh, what, six, seven years of the company, we adopted a decentralized structure 
of, of, you know, at different times we've called them business units or business segments or lines of business or what have you. But the key point was to always structure the company around entities that the size of which was like a startup or like a large single focused entity, even if it wasn't scale of a startup. And sometimes it's billions of dollars, but it's still the recipe is um, have groups of people be singularly focused in their mind mm -hmm. on what market they're competing for, what is the benchmark of excellence for them with no hiding behind somebody else if, if you know. And so it's that um, structure that we have which gives us velocity, focus, and, and, and competitive hunger in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, being very good at everything that we do individually. Um, while saying, well, the expectation from our uh, customers, particularly the larger customers who buy several parts of the portfolio, is well, hey, is there a federal thing here so that all these things have some coherence to them? And do they come? Um, uh, Who's the boss? And, and is there a better together? Is there a one plus one equal three that, that uh, you know, I should expect from something coming from the same company? And, you know, Cisco is great at doing a single point of and excellent things like support. You know, it doesn't matter what the product is. You can come to Cisco with one place and you'll have sure. very strong technical people. But increasingly, we're aware that um, customers wanting outcomes wanting a little bit of a mirror of what they get from the cloud, but sometimes either in a multi-cloud or on-premise and cloud environment, expect more commonality in management, more commonality in, in integration and, and so forth. And so we're investing a lot in that. Uh -huh. And has that, been, has that been a struggle? Um, um, it, it's, uh, it's been, uh, the difficulty of doing it really well mm -hmm. is, is when you're very acquisitive, which we are. Yeah. So because if you, if your space is static and sort of you can expect that the next five years are going to be like the current five years, then you can say, well, let's have an architecture that's top down and right. everybody signs on to the same paradigm, etc. If you are very nimble and acquisitive, well, a week from Monday there will be something that you hadn't planned on with their own architecture, and you have to constantly digest and integrate. So that's that's, that's kind it. of the downside of having these individual units that that's uh, right. That's that right. Are pretty we get speed and velocity. Yes. Yeah. We get we uh -huh. have a lot of speed boats, a lot of great boats, but then we need a flotilla, and yeah. we're working hard on making those very uh, <laughs> uh, boisterous yeah. and 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 great boats act uh, better and better over time as a flotilla, mm -hmm. and and we have that opportunity, and customers, you know, appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the enterprise market. Um, obviously, uh, hyperscale clouds, white box solutions are all, they've been slowly eating away at the enterprise market. What is Cisco's role now in this space um, and going forward? Yeah, um, multiple roles. I mean, we're very excited about what the cloud is doing and what, number one, we use the cloud a lot, right? I mean, my engineering team does use uh, different clouds for different things. Some of them do QA in the cloud. Some of them simulate load in the cloud. Some of them deploy SaaS, uh, obviously, assets in the cloud. So um, we have a multiple um, plane uh, or multiple level relationship to cloud. Number one, to a lot of these guys, we sell a lot of infrastructure. Some of them are among our largest customers, you know, for switching equipment and other equipment. Um, we also have been very uh, focused on taking our value proposition that has been in the past tied to our hardware, uh, where hardware and software together were delivering the, the system value and the outcome to customers, and extending the value of the software so that it's still delivers that value even when it's projected over somebody else's hardware or some unknown hardware to us, uh, which we only see through the APIs uh, mm -hmm. of the cloud. And so an example of that is um, 
the announcement we're making in, in Barcelona about ACI Anywhere. ACI is our software-defined networking solution. It started off being on-premise and working hand-in-hand -hand right. with Cisco Nexus hardware. Over time, we've expanded it so that people can have remote locations for disaster recovery or for distributed computing at the edge. And uh, we've had uh, things like uh, remote leaves uh, so that ACI can still go, even if in the path there are non-ACI mm -hmm. switches. Then we virtualized the ACI so that it could run as a you know set of VMs uh, sitting on anybody's hypervisor, independent of there being a Cisco switch over there. Yeah. And the last uh, crowning of this is to take ACI over into Azure and into AWS so that there's no Cisco gear in sight over there, or at least it's not part of what the customer sees, even if we may be selling to those cloud mm -hmm. guys uh, gear underneath. Um, we wanted to have customers not have to learn multiple environments. So the key thing we focused on is, is to serve more than one cloud, right? Customers yeah. do want to avoid the vendor lock-in of any More one than cloud. one cloud and more than one um, hardware brand. More than one cloud, more than one hardware brand, and equally important, um, more than one uh, um, workload deployment framework. So for example, ACI, through the journey of five years that we've been on it, we've scooped up, of course, bare metal in any form but also every hypervisor we're integrated with, whether it's uh, Hyper-V or ESX or OpenStack, every container framework, Docker, uh, OpenShift. And, and uh, so that commitment to saying, because what we're observing is that customers find themselves with all these things coexisting at once. Things almost never go away, right? Mm -hmm. There's still a mainframe somewhere. There are still a few Sun servers doing you know, Oracle database uh, somewhere on Unix. There are a lot of, of course, uh, hypervisor-based things. That's been kind of the big thing over the last uh, decade or so. And then new cloud-native applications, whether they go on-prem or not, are being built on Kubernetes or other things. But all of these have to coexist, and those are all passengers on the same hardware, which is you know uh, racks of servers yeah. or blades. And your software-defined network, you should expect it, which is what our belief is, to be uh, hypervisor agnostic, to be container framework agnostic, and cloud API agnostic. Mm -hmm. so, and that's been really the, the freedom we wanted our customers to have, which is deploy on economic grounds, on you know, do you want to buy or do you want to you know, uh, build or do you want to CapEx or OpEx? Yeah. But you should not be, that should not have a technical consequence. If, if you come to us, we should give you the same value sure. proposition. And, and I understand, uh, I mean, probably there, there wasn't much friction when deciding we're going to uh, extend it to the cloud because you're not really competing with them directly. Um, when tell me about kind of when you guys made the decision to make ACI hardware agnostic, um, was there resistance? There must have been, right? Because that's kind of not really. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end up, you know, taking away one less reason to buy a Cisco switch. Well, I can speak on my watch. Right, the last two years, yeah. I've never had that hang up. I really, really never had that taboo. And the reason is, I know the value that our switches deliver independently of whether you're using them in an automated mode and in a you know software-defined mode. We, we have aspects to the switches that you like and or don't like, that you value or don't value, that stand up on their own two feet. I'll use one example. I talked earlier about titration and the rich telemetry. Well, the silicon that we have in our ASICs are, is what makes the difference between being able to do not sampled and you know every packet out of a thousand. We're talking every single packet in every single flow getting you know fingerprinted metadata captured and uh, rolled up into a uh, big data platform without slowing down the traffic so when we say we do 100 gig per port on a 64 port switch 
we can do 100 gig per second while we're doing the, the telemetry. We can do 100 gig per second while we're doing the policy and whitelisting that I talked about. We do 100 gig per second report while we do smart buffering and queuing and things like that. Our new frontier now is 400 gigabit per second per port. We announced that a couple of months ago and uh, are now in early field trials. Same thing. We are doing 400 gig with features. And that, that's, mm -hmm. you know, where people care about uh, hardware. And that's why you see even some of the cloud guys making hardware acquisitions. You know, you yeah. see Amazon having bought Annapurna, et cetera, for smart NICs. Because software doesn't run on water molecules in the cloud. It, it runs on silicon. So you're confident enough that um, you're not going to cannibalize, quote unquote, no, the, no, no, no. In fact, if anything, business because no. it's a and it helps. Yeah, and it helps. And yeah, and if you can do a good job for brownfield environments and for mixed environments, it helps you get adopted into places where people can uh, have the opportunity to put new and the latest and greatest switches and software, right? Because otherwise, every other time you would say, well, unless I can give you a value proposition of security and segmentation and policy. Uh, like either you can or you can't, and if you can't, I'll look for somebody who can. And so mm -hmm. we want, it's more important for us to give the outcome to the customer across the span of, of where they want to deploy their workloads in a data center that might be a mixed data center of Cisco, non-Cisco, across remote locations like in uh, retail, you know, increasingly people are deploying a little bit of, you know, rack uh, for computing in a uh, store uh, for mm -hmm. you know, anything from point of sale data to uh, the video cameras to analytics and where people are stopping on which shelf and doing what. There's a lot of that exciting stuff happening. I mean, that's another form of IoT, if you will, in retail. And uh, the ability to extend the value proposition and say just because the workload is there doesn't mean we don't know how to whitelist it and how to segment it and how to prevent the wrong hands from getting onto you know a piece of database or a piece of consumer um, you know. Uh, cashier data that, that you want to do analytics on. Obviously, open source software has been around for a long time, but uh, open source hardware also emerged um, through OCP yes. primarily. Um, can you talk about the impact of of that open source hardware, uh, open, source data, open source data center yeah. hardware, and also open source software on Cisco and generally on um, Kind of the big enterprise the vendors. In yeah, yeah we, we've we've embraced that as well. You know, in the spirit of no taboo and and no hangups, we've we've and we've you know talked publicly about the fact that we have some of these OCP uh, defined. Uh, we have something called SAI, which is the yeah. switch abstraction interface uh, exposed on our switches. So that's if a, that's a born at Microsoft, that's Microsoft's, Microsoft's yeah. one, but it, it you know it's in the open uh -huh. uh, right. compute uh, in OCP yeah. pr project. And uh, why do we love it? Because you know some customers say, look, I love your silicon. I love I love the quality of your hardware. I love what you do in optics and things. And the, but I have my own OS. Are you open for business if, if I just choose to disaggregate that way? And we've said absolutely. And we've exposed you know, our uh, hardware capabilities through things like SAI. Mm -hmm. um, are, are there any, any other um, frameworks like SAI? Like SAI. That are um, open? So, the, so the, there are of, of the... Um, the ones that are out there, there there's one called uh, SAI is, is the one that I know of uh, the best, and that's where OCP has. There's something in the Linux community called FRR, which is another, it's a different approach to exposing um, underlying hardware through a Linux uh, mm -hmm. kernel. And do you guys support that? Um, we're working on that. Okay. But the other piece is, is that a lot of the... Um, a lot of these hyperscalers, particularly the very big ones, are, are really each um, a market of one. Like some of them are actually promoting things in open fora and in you know trying to get industry wide interoperability between hardware you know somebody else's software on somebody else's hardware. Some of them are just doing it for themselves and not bothering to go public with it. 
I mean, sure. I'm not going to name names, yeah. but some of the really, really big ones have functionally equivalent ways of, of plopping software on hardware, but are not as interested or have not been as visible, say, as a Facebook or a Microsoft mm -hmm. in being, you know, in the OCP community trying to foster uh, industry-wide uh, agreement. Why did you guys decide to support, to you know, to open your hardware to SAI? Um, is that so you can have, you know, do more business with Microsoft? Um, or are there other customers out there, there that use SAI? Yeah, there are other. Uh, yeah, there are other. Uh, you know, some of the uh, so the the uh, interest and the excitement around it uh, goes beyond Microsoft for sure, right? I mean, some of the large hyperscalers in China have been very uh, vocal and supportive of that. Um, I assume you're not going to tell me who they are. I, I only because I, I can't remember which of them went public with it or not. So I'm going <laughs> to uh, we'll do a bit of googling after <laughs> that to see who said but there it. aren't that many. So <laughs> there aren't that many. Yeah, but but those guys, some of them have been you know quite quite interested in doing uh -huh. that. Um, Facebook, you know, uh, is another one who who has you know obviously through their support for OCP. Uh, there might be quite a few more. I I, I just would rather make sure that we do our diligence about uh -huh. who actually said it uh, but you know it, it, there's it's a it's a real industry-wide uh, but it's interest. but it's pretty much a hyperscale thing it's not like, it's mostly uh, a hyperscale thing we we see you know, some telcos see, like, prudential uh, uh, yeah no AI. i mean here's what we see we Maybe see yeah we see some telcos exploring the idea some traditional telecom operators you know saying hey look if i wanted to do my own combo of hardware from Peter and software from Paul, uh, would that be uh, feasible? And we've shown some of them. In fact, one of them asked us to do the reverse for writer's work. One of the two very large ones in the US said, well, how about show me that your NXOS operating system, which goes on the switch, can be put on merchant silicon-based white box switches. So hardware not from Cisco, software from Cisco. Uh -huh. So the opposite of what we're yeah. doing with SAI. And we showed them that, and we we you know we even gave them a whole support model with the Cisco Technical uh, Center and all of that. And they said that's wonderful, great. Uh, you proved to us that you are open and interoperable and this and that. Mm -hmm. And in the end, they continue to purchase mostly in the traditional integrated way because they do like the you know root of trust that you get if the hardware and software come from the same vendor. You can do a continuity of putting, you know, uh, encryption capabilities in the hardware from which you can boot the software image with it and proving that it's not compromised and, and have... So there are benefits if you do something yeah. uh, from the same vendor, but, I mean, they're mindful uh, yeah. of that. Would and you guys do that for any customer or just the big ones, like, from like a, a giant yeah, US telco? I mean, from a philosophical point of view, we would go in with it with an openness to doing it. The, the, key, the key thing that we're seeing customer... Uh, where customers are, are assessing is, look... What does it take for, for a customer to be doing the integration, the testing, the ongoing, okay, well, this guy revved his version from X to X plus one, the hardware is on this, and the microcode is something else. In the end, it pretty quickly, it balloons into several dozen, you know, if not, you know, one or a couple of hundred people to do the whole job of integrating, especially if you do it for more than one thing, for servers, for switches, and so forth. And there are two logics for doing it or not doing it predominantly. One is scale. Do you have enough infrastructure to warrant that you can throw 80 people at it and not worry about it because it's worth it? Obviously, for somebody like Amazon or Google, they've decided that it was worth it. And clearly, they have the volume to justify to, to kind of amortize those fixed costs. The other thing is, um, with the people I have, is the best use of their talent to be doing this kind of a work instead of doing something else. And that's where we see a lot of people think about it and then go back and say, well, if I have one man hour of, of somebody smart do I want to have them, you know, um, optimizing revenue or reducing churn on the cellular, you know, uh, <laughs> mobile subscription? Or do I want them 
uh, doing testing and interoperability between the white box from, from this guy and the software from that guy. And often what you'd find is unless it's your business to be doing that, people would rather deploy their, you know, for example, financial institutions on Wall Street, some of them have the chops. I mean, from a technical capability, they have very sophisticated IT environment. And some of them really are quite eager to say, gee, do I want to do something like the cloud, even though my scale is not the sure. one, the well, scale of, of the hyperscale. Some of them were involved in OCP from the beginning. Exactly, yeah. exactly, very publicly. Uh, but then they go, well, gee, hey, I'll make more money if I put the smart guy on doing a hedge fund strategy than, yeah. you know, bloating my IT at the expense of putting people on applications. Yeah. So that's always the tug, which is, given my business, do I want to put my muscle on what drives my top line or saves uh, cost from my supply chain or this or that versus putting it in integration? Now, when your job is to be running a computing hotel, uh, as you know, as a hyperscaler cloud really is, then you go, I'm going to invest every penny I can to making my hotel more efficient and so forth. So for them, it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And they have great software people to do it. There's mm -hmm. no question. So... What was your reaction when you uh, first learned, you know, that, that Facebook, for example, was designing their own switch? I, I can't remember. The first one was the wedge or the six. First one was the wedge. So yeah, for, uh, for the most part, uh, OCP and Facebook was in the and frankly today still the majority of what we see as, um, if you will, open designs or or uh, open blueprints have been for fixed switches. Right, a fixed switch where you just have one, uh, one board with one ASIC and uh, one uh, sort of uh, control plane. Um, what you were alluding to, um, like six pack or backpack or things like that, is is the attempt to take those open designs towards uh, modular switches, where now you have a big chassis. Uh, as opposed to only one sort of pizza box that, that is a fixed uh, configuration, you could have a larger chassis where you add line cards as you need more and more ports. So it's a much more modular approach to things. And there, it, it, it's actually a lot more um, complex to be, number one, taking an OS that you may have built for only one ASIC and, and one CPU and then making it a distributed operating system, because now you get into inter-process communication and complexities of you know keeping the box in sync. But the designs are out there. In practice, we're seeing the hyperscalers predominantly continue to have a preference um, as much as possible for fixed systems when it comes to doing, um, whether it's OCP or not, when it comes to doing you know, disaggregated systems, yeah. white box well, systems. So when you first learned about um, Facebook designing their own switches, um, what, what did you think? Did you think, yay, you know, they're going to be pushing things forward in the industry, or oh my God, you know we're going to lose a whole bunch of business now. Um, um, I don't. Know. You, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we we got intrigued and we started participating. Frankly, I mean, you know, it's not like we've been you know hiding in the woods and and not not being active parts of that because we we talk to all these people, we sell them gear. We we were, I mean, overall, I would say we've been quite excited as engineers because you know anything that's a paradigm shift or something that is an exploration a geek is, is, is going to love and want to be, you know, stimulated and, and participate in. And um, knowing what it takes to do a good system and when it's worth it or not, I did not lose really much sleep as far as, oh, God, you know, 80% uh, of my business is going to go disaggregated and do I know how to compete there. But it, what it has sharpened in our minds, you know, in that enthusiasm to go and participate is also something which we've always known but, you know, is now even more clearly our uh, a point of awareness is it used to be that we had to compete as solutions all along, but we also had to compete as best of breed, right? And the definition of best of breed used to be a box 
but the box with its hardware and its software, right? The whole box. With uh, initiatives like this, now you have to be best of breed even on a subset of the box. You have to have the best ASICs. You have to have the best optics. You have to best have the best operating system, and not only to assemble it. And so it just takes to the next level the notion of you have to be excellent on individual parts of the car, and then the whole car together has to also perform beautifully well, and then the whole fleet of cars for people who want to be at the opposite end from where the hyperscalers are, right? I mean, the funny thing in my business, when, when I look at, so what's different between what I'm doing now and what I may have done in networking, um, you know, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, what's different now is the, the spectrum of um, purchasing uh, patterns of my customers has never been so broad, never been so so different, where on the one hand, there's the guy who wants to pick apart the bill of materials and pick what he or she wants and say, I want this without that and that without this. On the other end, the majority of my enterprise customers are saying, well, how come in the cloud I don't have to ask any questions? I just you know, push on APIs and buttons and I get outcomes and my developers get in business in half a day. Give me this experience on premise. You automate, you integrate, you give me you know, the outcome. Right and and you know often uh, like when I talked about the cloud delivered intersite management capabilities, it's like you know you also watch over my equipment, and you should be telling me if I'm about to run into a wall before I do. Mm-hmm. So you can see the the, uh, the the one guy who's the supplier of that experience to to mankind, which is the cloud guy, wants to pick it apart to do to do yeah. their, their own definition of best of breed. The other guy who's typically would have might have been the customer of the cloud guy says, but even for when I'm doing things on premise i want that same outcome. yeah why can't you do that yeah yeah like, like they do yeah and they've seen cisco um, do that you know in things like meraki right i mean meraki has is all about um a cloud managed cloud delivered yeah. uh, experience for and and, and t- t- titration seems to be yeah, the same intersite so, so does that has that so if this hypothetical enterprise guy is telling you i want all these things and you tell him sure yes but it's going to cost you you know x amount more than just what you've had before um, is that the case? Is it well, a a is um, is it more expensive for them to have all the to have that uh, cloud uh, user experience on prem? Um, and b if it is more expensive, what's their reaction? Are they like okay, cool, you know, if it works yeah. the way I want it, I'm ready to pay for it. Yeah, no, the whole idea is that it 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 can't be more expensive as long as you. I mean, it it can certainly you know you'll be thrown out if you're telling them it's more expensive than you hiring a dozen people to do the job. Because somehow, you know, um, sure. right? And so it has to be obviously that we, via automation and tooling, can take care of the things which have pinned down, you know, man hours and, and, and cycles, such that the outcome in the end is that less is getting spent, right? And, and so, because um, managed services uh, have existed for a long time, right? Managed services have been around for a long time. IBM Global Services is a big, you know, participant, Accenture and others. The thing is that managed services, when they were highly manual, somebody was putting a lot of people on running after issues and figuring out what was going on and sometimes going on site, et cetera. And whether it was the customer's people or the managed service provider's people, it was still people and those people need to get paid. And, uh, you know, in the end, the bill, one guy was marketing it up by 10% or 20%, but in the end, the bill had to be a multiple of people. And the opportunity we have with, with, with the advent of data and tethering the product so that really you're getting all that pulse of, of the systems is to let software and tools do it so that net-net, fewer people either from me, the provider of a, uh, you know, a cloud experience or the customer who's the uh, c- uh, consumer of it, 
net net fewer people are are having to be mobilized for the for the task that can lend themselves to be automated. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is these customers want to liberate their their uh, capabilities to put more people on their own application software. Right. I mean, every what's changed. Here's another way that I would I would say about what, what have I realized when I came back into this job in data center, is it used to be that unless you were a software company, unless you were Adobe or Microsoft or Oracle, you were as IT. Your job was to make uh, software available to your users, make you know Microsoft available, make Oracle available, make SAP available, but to consume software. That mandate still exists, but in addition, it almost doesn't matter what industry you're in. You could be, if you're in financial services, you have thousands of application developers doing hedge fund strategies, right, doing, doing this and this. Right. If you're in retail, gee, that industry is so disrupted that, you know, everybody's having to do their own application. So software. they want they want a platform to run that uh, And And they want as many of their manpower and, applied to the software that makes a difference to their business, not to the tactical software, which to them is tactical, of making the gear work, right? right? And that, that's, I think, the win-win opportunity. And um, so is uh, providing this tooling and the orchestration and security, um, is, is uh, software as a service part of that strategy? Absolutely. So, so instead of you know, just selling the you know, boxes and software, it's an ongoing revenue source. Yes, um, yeah. Software as a service is is to me is a is a delivery vehicle. Obviously, you know, for, for software, it's it's many things. It's it's a business model where you pay recurring subscription instead yeah. of acquiring perpetual licenses. It's also a way, you know, some of these uh, things, if they were on premise, would have required their own maintenance too, right? Hey, there's an appliance on which the management software is running. I need to run around, and you know, there's a new vulnerability. <laughs> Again, Spectrum meltdown, this, that. If it's SaaS, you don't worry about it. You're just, you know, consuming it uh, remotely. There's also, to me, the, the big opportunity, which is the one of of pooling, the pooling of resources and the pooling of data, right? So SaaS from multiple customers, from multiple customers, uh, because that, that's where and then you exactly that, that's where I. I, I, when I want to really sort of drill it into my engineering team, I say, look, ideally we should have no bug discovered by a customer. Customers should not be finding bugs if you guys do your job perfectly. But we're all human. Bugs will escape and, and, and go out. Okay, what is the next best ideally? The next best ideally is only one customer should ever run into that bug. So it escaped us. A guy run, right. ran into it, reported it. We fixed it. We have a patch for it. If you're SaaS-based and cloud-delivering, then you have the opportunity immediately to go to the N minus one other customers who are running the same software release and might be turning on the same feature, which I wouldn't know if the if these were not connected. But if they That's are right. connected, I can see you are, you know, this bug happens if you eat, you know, uh, um, pickles. And I see from the telemetry that you're eating pickles. And uh, for those people who are eating pickles at this time of the day with this software release, you're going to be liable to this. Let me fix you before you, you run into it. Roland, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Eugenia. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>